Let me just very quickly make sure that the levels are okay. Yeah, yeah it's a good thing to do a little test because my voice is very soft. <laughs> okay. All right. So, if you would just introduce yourself. Cecilia Vicuña. Uh, I'm an artist and poet from Chile, and I have been in the U.S. since 1980. And what is the name of your exhibition? Disappeared Kipu. So, one of the goals of the show, The Lonely Palette, is to introduce people to art, usually who have never actually experienced the piece. Mm -hmm. um, and I uh, actually went to the Brooklyn Museum mm -hmm. and saw the piece installed. And I usually ask people to describe what it feels like to actually be there. And I can say from my own experience that I walked into the room, I see these tremendous kipu hanging from the ceiling, but without knowing yet what it is, I just see these incredible knots coming mm -hmm. down. And it's such a, it's not what you expect out of knots, you know, knots. Knots are usually small and disruptive and kind of inconvenient, and this, the scale of this really was tremendous. And then you walk around and you start hearing the whispers and music and voices, and you see the projections, and they change from every angle. And I just wanted to ask right at the outset, how would you describe what it feels like to walk into your own installation, mm. and what immediately pops out at you and compels you to stay and look around? Well, I feel like uh, being inside a womb. Mm -hmm. And it feels like it's a womb for all potential. So inside there, you are safe, you're protected, you are in a sort of a space between being awake mm -hmm. and dreaming. So it's really like a dreamscape of what we can be or what we have been inside our mother's womb. And so it's a place to recreate our humanness. Um, that's what I feel. Hmm. Is it meant to return people to a sense of something that is gone? That seems like something that comes up in your work quite a bit. Yes, it is true that we must return to our true potential. That's what I feel. So uh, even though the practice of kipu is something that exists in the past, my feeling for it is that there is a treasure of knowledge and understanding of the double reality of the kipu, which is on the one hand tactile, and on the other hand it is an imaginary space. And it, it, in ancient times, the intangible part of the kipu was a system of understanding the relationship of the human body to the stars, to the uh, galaxies, to the sources of water in the galaxies and in the earth. So this is what motivates the idea of the scale, because if we conceive of ourselves as we currently do, we are separated from everybody, we're separated from the animals, we're separated from uh, other cultures. Mm. So our culture is all about limits, about keeping people in place. 
and being ruled and obeying rules. And so these rules are set up for profit. They are not set up for the benefit of humanity, for the benefit of the species, of the land, of water and sky. And so by returning, I really mean moving forward mm. to a different uh, idea of what we can be as humans on this earth. Yeah, this this idea of limits, you know, you talk about so much of your work involves threads Mm -hmm. and weaving. And Mm -hmm. you actually, you say some beautiful things about the waves weave our breath in and out and weavers see a universe between thread and thread. You have this tremendous language that you use with, with this idea of weaving. And this idea kind of of connectivity, mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about the awareness that is so present in kind of the origin story you talk about when you, in 1966, when your, uh, your relationship with the sea mm-hmm. and this awareness of its awareness. Yes. Could you speak a little bit more about that experience and also how we can identify that in your work in this exhibition yeah I think uh, awareness is the primordial quality that makes us human I mean every mother and father knows that when a baby is born the baby opens her or his eyes and the baby takes in everything I mean to me that is the most moving thing because uh, when the baby takes in the world Nobody has instructed the baby as to what is and what is not. Therefore, the baby is in a limitless space. And now, for example, we know that children, before being instructed by our education system, they see more colors than adults. They hear more sounds. So it's like we're being trained to lose our potentials. You know, and so I hope that in my art, this awareness is transmitted viscerally, without thought. You first feel it. You feel it through the touch, if it is a performance where I weave people, or you feel it through the ears, if you are hearing the songs and laments, or you feel it physically when you are in the presence of this monstrous sculpture, or when you are in the presence of this minute pieces of debris. So I think by this transfiguration of a scale and the transfiguration of of paying attention to what is disregarded, like for example in my laments, I am an old woman crying. That's the most despised voice, the voice of the woman, you know. A woman's pain is disregarded now by the law of the U.S. I mean, look at the abuse, the abuse of people, the abuse of women, bodies, the abuse of pain. And so all these things, uh, you cannot really speak about them in a straightforward way because we have been taught that this is unimportant. So how do you manage to communicate a feeling by passing those restrictions? I'm thinking actually about, so when I first was looking at your work and, and your earlier work, um, this connection to, to nature and to the land, 
it brought to mind land artists from the 1970s, Robert Smith, you know, I mean, these artists in the U.S. who were so masculine. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, taking the work, and, and it's something that you do too, you take your work outside of the gallery space and you really, you know, you, you, you plunge your hands into the land and talk about the awareness of the land and our awareness and a lot of environmental concerns that, that come up through your work. Mm. But again, this is such a, 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 not just a male, not just a lot of male artists, but very masculine, you know, very big tools and, and yeah. an incredible amount of force. But at the same time, fiber art tends to be associated with a lot of women artists and has a, a feminist, you know, that kind of rec reclamation of, of fibers as artwork. Could you talk a little bit about how you bring the two together? How do you mm -hmm. feminize land art? How do you not necessarily keep fiber art in just the feminist realm? Yeah, yeah, it's a very good question because, well, Lucy Lippard, who's one of the great art historians of the US, she noticed that I was working in the landscape before the land art in the US. Actually, she says six months before because <laughs> she knew them and she uh, knew them personally, so she knows exactly the month when they began. Mm -hmm. And so uh, my art is very different from the land art in the sense that, in my view, your right is a very masculine, it's a very Western idea of uh, doing something to the land. So mm -hmm. the land has to be shaped to their will, their design, and so forth. What I do is the exact opposite of that. I listen to the awareness of the sea itself. That's how I learned that the weaves, the weaves, the waves are weaving. Look, I call them the weaves. You see, because everything in, in our living system in the biosphere is always weaving connections. Everything is cooperating. Everything is in, in a sort of strange mixture between cooperation and conflict, which is always for the benefit of the land itself or for the species that are uh, involved in this engagement. So that's what I began doing from the very beginning. Uh, so uh, once I felt that the ocean was aware and that there was a sort of music of knowledge in the sea itself, I melted, I disappeared as a person to become the listener, to become the aware observer. And that is the root of everything I do, is, is an act of love for the miracle of this awareness, because what created this awareness? It was not even our parents, it's a line of millions of years of evolution that we are suddenly part of. And there can be nothing more beautiful than that, the fact that we're going to die and somebody else will come in our place and will carry on this thread of awareness. And so in terms of how feminism, in a way, uh, feminism has been associated to weaving and to fiber arts that I find slightly ridiculous in the sense that um, the concept of weaving is already in bacteria, is already in living systems. And so when an artist, whether it is a man or a woman, picks this up, is doing something absolutely fundamental and primordial. 
The trouble with feminism is not feminism itself, it's the fact that feminism is seen as only female. For me, it's like the universe itself is feminist, you see, because what is the real purpose of feminism? It's liberation. It's liberation of limitations. You know, and I think I became a feminist as a little girl. As soon as I heard that there was something called feminism, I, I thought, my God, I'm one of them. But um, the ideology of, of um, both people who are for and against feminism, in my view, doesn't take into account the cosmic dimension of this connectivity and this uh, need to release and, and this profound realization of what our forces can be. Hmm. Can I ask one more question? And this might be a little bit conceptual, but I, I, I feel like that's where we should go. <laughs> In talking about the awareness of the sea and this awareness of the universe and our awareness of its awareness. Do you ascribe any kind of personality judgment? Is the sea angry with us? Is the sea comforted by us? It's so big, it's so overwhelming. I mean, is its awareness happy <laughs> with us? And, and has that changed over the course of your career? Have mm -hmm. you kept the same relationship with nature's response to you, to us? Mm. That's a beautiful question, of course. There's no way that we can answer it uh, other than our own deep orientation and feeling, which still will be our feeling, you know? In other words, um, my relationship to the ocean hasn't changed in the sense that even as a young girl, you know, I have a book called About to Happen, where I tell the story of being a little naked girl, two years old, and already uh, feeling the oil in the sand. My, the sole of my feet were already becoming black when I was already two years old, you know. So this was happening. Uh, and somehow, when I began doing my art as, as a teenager, I was already feeling the suffering of the sea. And there is a poet, a magnificent Chilean poet, indigenous mestiza like myself, called Gabriela Mistral. And she wrote a poem in the 40s called La Muerte del Mar, the death of the sea. So poets were already sensing that the sea had begun to die out of our disregard for its own life force. And is the sea angry? Well, the, the, the indigenous fishermen, for example, speak exactly about that, that the sea is, has abandoned us. And this is what the content of the poem of Gabriela Mistral, I have done a few performances to honor that poem. That's what she says. The sea retired itself as a sort of rebellion of the sea. I'm not going to support life anymore because we are abusing it. So, is this so? It is our perception. How can we tell? In any case, my heart says yes. We are killing the ocean and the ocean will die or will not die, but uh, 
we have to become aware of what we're doing if we want to continue. Most likely, life in this planet will continue, but very probably without us. Well, on that note, <laughs> I want to let you. I want to let you go, but I want to thank you so much for for sitting and, and speaking with me. And I really can't wait to experience not only this uh, exhibition, but also how it relates to the exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum. How the two are running simultaneously, which I know was deliberate. Yes. Um, could you actually just say very quickly why the two? kind of the, the philosophical intent of running the two side by side? Yeah, it, th there's two issues. One, on the one hand, uh, the ancient kipu kamayok, the people who created the kipus, usually paired them, did double kipus uh, for many purposes. Now we construe that it may have been uh, like a double count so that whatever is uh, uh, recorded in one kipu, there should be a copy of it. Mm? And so, uh, of course, the copy is slightly off sometimes, um, and that may have been part of the process, but that's on, let's say, the historical level. But in the case of the Brooklyn and the, the MFA, I think it was a matter of a scheduling, but of course I was delighted, because if you have two kipus that are somehow um, the same work, but completely different, because the kipu is site-specific. It responds to always to particular location. Mm -hmm. So the height is different, the width is different, the light is different. For example, here it will be more like a night kipu in that it will be a darkened, not mm -hmm. completely dark, but much darker room. Therefore, the, the, the beauty of the textile projection will hopefully come forth much more intensely. In Brooklyn, we had a sky a skylight, mm -hmm. so there was a lot of daily light coming through, so that made it very faint, the projection, mm -hmm. which of course had a beauty and a poetry to itself. So As did the natural light kind of breathing in the room, too. That's right, which and is changed during yeah. the day and, and the hour, and depending on whether it was cloudy or whether it was spring mm -hmm. or summer and so forth. So all these variables, all these things that you cannot control are the art of the kipu. The kipu responds like a human being. Mm -hmm.